From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. The France and Russia also became sided with, with Haftar uh, recently. France was, was going back and forth, but I think they both had a lot of interest in uh, infrastructure and the uh, oil industry, and they wanted to make sure that's the case. This week, we dive into the situation in Libya. We speak with Dr. Ali Ahmida, political science professor at the University of New England in Maine. We also speak with Zoha Khalili, attorney with the organization Palestine Legal. We unpack the resolution introduced this week by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar that protects the right to boycott. So I think one thing that's important to recognize about the bill is that what it's doing is it's affirming the existing law that says that all Americans have a right to engage in boycotts to advance civil rights. And that that right is protected by the First Amendment. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Do stay with us. Since the overthrow of longtime dictator Muammar al-Qaddafi in 2011, with the support of NATO, Libya has been thrown into chaos with no end in sight. For the past few years, a power struggle has emerged between the internationally recognized government, led by Prime Minister Fayez al-Sarraj, and the self-proclaimed Libyan National Army, led by General Khalifa Haftar, who receives military support from regional and international powers, including the U.S. The latest episode in this power struggle started in April with the advancement of General Haftar towards the capital, Tripoli. The confrontation have so far claimed hundreds of lives. Also earlier this month, an airstrike by the Haftar forces on the Tajura Immigration Detention Center in eastern Tripoli claimed the lives of at least 40 refugees and migrants and injured more than 80. Amnesty International said that around 600 people were trapped in the detention center with no way to escape and called for the attack to be independently investigated as a war crime. Khalil Bendib spoke with Ali Ahmida, professor of political science at the University of New England in Maine, and asked him about the regional and international players who are fueling the conflict, as well as the latest on the battle for Tripoli. It is a stalemate, Khalil. We have the uh, Libyan National Army, headed by General Haftar, coming from the east via the south and besieging Tripoli, and the government of national accord headed by uh, Prime Minister Faisal Sarraj and the armed groups, Islamists and armed groups and militias from the city of Tripoli, Misrata, some from Zawiya, few from the Jabal, who are behind this uh, other faction of the Libyan civil war. Right now, it's a stalemate. The general announced uh, with his uh, army marching to the outskirts of Tripoli that the war is going to be very quick. I think that turned to be inaccurate. There is a stalemate. The army is besieging the city, and the battle is outside the city in the around the region or the area of the international airport, Tripoli International Airport. And I think the the fight has been going on for now almost two and a half months or three months, you know, up until now. And there is a um, there is no decisive dominance of the army or the coalition that's you know resisting the uh, coming of of the Libyan army to Tripoli, and right now is really a huge mess. The big victims of this are innocent civilians. Uh, almost six hundred uh, Libyans were killed on both sides. Uh, destruction of property and uh, thousands of Libyans who had to flee their homes, especially in the areas around the city where the fighting is taking place. So it's, um, it's a mess, but that's really, unfortunately, the case of Libya. Um, in retrospect, it's an ongoing civil war. 
Yes, so a few years ago when we last talked, there was already a big uh, stalemate between different factions. Uh, there was these two major power centers, one in Tobruk and the other one in, in Tripoli. So tell us a little bit more about uh, Mr. Hefter. He, he's been a mystery to a, a lot of people. He seems to receive support from major allies like Egypt and uh, Russia. The U.S. is not clear. Tell us a little bit more about who he is and what he's after. I mean, obviously he wants the power, but beyond that, uh, he was for a while living in, in the U.S. He used to be part of the, the, the regime under Gaddafi. Some people have talked about how he was with the CIA. It's, it's not clear exactly who this uh, character is. Well, uh, he's a very controversial character. You're right. He was one of the free officers who toppled the monarchy, the Libyan monarchy, with Gaddafi, around 300 junior officers who had a clandestine organization which toppled the monarchy in September 1st, 1969. General Hafter was, you know, a very important officer in this organization, but his career took a, a big uh, setback as the, the uh, head of the Libyan army in northern Chad. Libya has been involved in the Chadian civil war, supporting many factions, and at the end, one faction, you know, uh, turned against it, and the Reagan administration and the French also um, intelligence and army, all within the Cold War or the late Cold War period, they turned against the army and the Libyan army had a very, very terrible defeat in Wadi Doom and Northern Chad and Southern Libya. And after he was captured and we don't know the details of what happened there, but he ended by joining the Libyan opposition and he was lifted with other troops to the United States, and he joined the Front for the Salvation of Libya, which is a, an opposition group against the Gaddafi regime, known for close ties to the United States government, Saudi Arabia, and other Western allies who told Gaddafi is really their uh, a rogue state. He lived in the United States for almost um, you know, uh, 15 years or 20 years, it's very well-known fact that um, he lived in the area in Washington, D.C., and was quiet for quite a bit. When the uprising took place, he began to join the, uh, the uprising and arrived in eastern Libya, where he's from, and uh, began to assert himself at the beginning as the head of the Libyan National Army, but he was not really a major actor at the beginning. When the conflict between different factions and the failures of the, the coalition that tried to lead the government after uh, 2011 failed to really uh, unify the country and make a transition to state building, he asserted himself as an alternative and began to fight a group of a very, very nasty and very militant Islamists and extremists in Derna and in Benghazi. Benghazi, uh, as a city, was the second largest city, was almost destroyed in this war. But after three years, he managed to assert himself because of the terrible consequences of the militarization of the Libyan uprising. And Libya became really a battleground for proxy wars, for extremists, for uh, fighters from Afghanistan, the opposition from groups from Sudan and Chad. And he, because of, not because he was the most valuable or the most credible character, because situation deteriorated to a horrible situation that many people began to say, we want to return the army, we want to go back to the institution of the state, we revolted against the dictatorship, but the Libyan institution are ours. And because of this horrible situation, General Haftar emerged as a credible, a new actor in the Libyan scene, especially after 2014. And uh, how come we ended up with two alternatives for a government? I mean, there's Haftar on, on the one side and then the other faction. Why is it that they couldn't come together? Well, uh, uh, that's the key question, but it could be explained. 
Unfortunately, all the coverage of Libyan crisis is really, you know, doesn't tell us clearly about these good questions. And as if the crisis has no history or has no uh, context to it, I would say the biggest failure in the Libyan uprising, which was very courageous, very popular, led by young men and women who revolted against the regime. And they really didn't plan at the beginning to topple the regime. But when the regime began to fire on them, they became radicalized. Unfortunately, two things happened after that. The Libyan uprising became militarized. The Gaddafi regime refused to have even negotiations and rivals of that regime began to arm and support armed struggle against the government. So the, the, what happened, I think now, it's very safe to say, uh, Khalil, that what happened in Libya is a civil war. There are factions and groups who supported the old regime. There's the coalition that wanted to really topple the regime and the regional powers and international actors began to intervene in this side or, or another. And the Libyan borders became really open to all kinds of groups. And Libya is very huge. It's the third largest you know, country in Africa. So what happened, the civil war led to militarization and regional and, and foreign intervention. And the most organized groups, especially the Islamists and the fighters who came from Iraq and Afghanistan and so were able to assert themselves. And they refused any attempt to resurrect or strengthen the Libyan army and the Libyan armed uh, forces and the police force. That pushed Libya on the brink of a classical civil war in the east, in the west, and in the south. Except the fight in the east ended within three years, and Libya at the same time engaged in three elections. The Transitional National Council, they organized an election in 2000. 12, and they elected a, a parliament, and that was stationed uh, or placed in Tripoli. Also, that, that parliament was supposed to be serving for two years, and after that, a, a new election for a parliament and a constitution um, assembly that will draft a new constitution for Libya. However, unintended consequences of the Libyan civil war was the emergence of victorious cities and defeated cities. This is how I describe it. Defeated cities that supported the old regime were marginalized and humiliated, and cities that won the civil war with the help of NATO, which was very disastrous. I never, never liked it, and I think right now we could say that, especially toppling the regime and leaving Libya to all of these groups was the most irresponsible thing one can do to a country like Libya. So what happened after that is the militarization, the foreign support for various groups. You have the uh, people of General Congress in Tripoli, and uh, we have the parliament that was elected in 2014. But the parliament could not really uh, convene in Tripoli because rival groups, militias, refused to have that parliament stationed in Tripoli, and different militias divided the city of Tripoli and the city of Mistrata since 2012 emerged as the mightiest military force in the West. So here, after that, you have a political geography that looks like this. The East has been, you know, um, free, with the exception of cities like Derna that became separated from the Libyan state. You have the South has became a battleground of um, illegal immigrants, extremist groups, opposition groups, smugglers, gangs, all of kind of groups, and the West controlled by the city of Mastrata and the militias of Zintan and the four militias in Tripoli that dominated the, the city of Tripoli. Now, the UN entered the UN. The UN tried to convene all factions in Tripoli and tried to uh, create a compromise, but uh, that compromise it was full of contradictions. It was signed in the city of Sherat in Morocco in uh, December 2015. But the, the most important 
you know, um, agreement what has never, never been executed, which is to disarm the armed groups in Tripoli. So Faisal Sarraj was accepted as, and appointed as, by the UN Sherat uh, Agreement, as the prime minister of the government of National Accord. But the, the armed groups uh, still continue and divided the city of Tripoli. Faisal Sarraj government was recognized internationally by the Security Council, by the UN. But at the same time, the parliament that could not convene in Tripoli moved to the city of, of Tobruk, which accepted uh, the parliament to convene there. And in a de facto way, we have two governments, a parliament, a linked government in, in the east called the temporary government, and the government of Faisal Sarraj in Tripoli. Except the irony here, Khalil, the government of national accord in Tripoli was very much controlled by the armed groups. Mr. Sarraj had the international recognition and support but in a contradictory way, he was weak, his government was weak, and he relied on those very, very much powerful uh, four militias to control his government. And worse, those armed groups became an economic monopolies and cartel that controlled uh, money, banks, positions, and the state uh, institutions. And, and you have a stalemate. In that situation, you have a stalemate that became uh, international recognition in the, in the West uh, and a government in the East that's also very, very much based on the parliament. And in 2015, General Haftar was appointed uh, and uh, as, a, as the head of the Libyan army without any, any attempt to sit down and have compromises and painful compromises for the sake of, of, of national reconciliation that did not happen in Libya. And with the, with the existence of 20 million a piece of arms and weapons, uh, you have a disastrous situation and, and in a very much a civil war that hasn't been resolved. So when you say uh, Haftar was appointed head of the army, who appointed him? Well, that's what happened because he emerged as a, a de facto um, character especially in the East. Uh, now his army is part of the remnants of Gaddafi's uh, government. Some of it are uh, tribal elements, some of our Salafis. He was the parliament in the East appointed to him as a de facto leader and gave him legitimacy. But the government in the East, in the West, and other um, uh, supporters of that government never recognized him as such. So you have two governments, a vacuum in the whole country, and uh, competing uh, claims for legitimacy. So we have one government in Tripoli or in the West that is internationally recognized, even though it's very weak and dominated by militias, four militias. Yes. yes. And on the other hand, in the East and Benghazi and the rest of the East, uh, you have this other government which is coalesced around Haftar. Yes. And, Very much. and right now we have a clash in Tripoli. The, the East, uh, around Mr. Haftar, has decided to try to take over nationwide if they can. Because if That's they very true. To... That's very true. With, with a little bit of um, one additional factor, Khalil, uh, because the situation became so dire for ordinary Libyans, uh, not only just uh, working classes, but even middle classes, the, many people, I wouldn't say everybody, but many people began to say, if the army will bring stability and get rid of all of the armed groups, even though he's controversial and he might uh, so and so and so, uh, he might be a news a strong man or authoritarian leader in making, be it. And Libyan society, to be clear, is divided on this issue, except that with more terrible, you know, um, insecurities, kidnapping, killing, vigilante justice. The southern leaders of the towns of, of, of southern Libya, central and southern Libya, invited the army in January. And within uh, a month and a half, the army, in a very, very um, remarkable way, was welcomed to southern Libya. So that empowered General Haftar to assemble the remnants of the old regime, his own supporters, to uh, make a coalition and march into Tripoli, except that 
seems to be backfiring because it wasn't as easy as he predicted. Okay. So we have sort of two-thirds or two major centers in that tripartite uh, configuration in Libya, the east, the west, and the south. Yes. We, we have now, at least for, for now, we have the, the east around Benghazi and the center south under one, one hat, General Haftar. And on the other side, you have the, the victorious cities, as you called them, Misrata, yeah. Zintan, Tripoli. And they are clustered around the internationally recognized government of... uh, of, Yes. Yes. So looking now outside, looking at all the regional powers and the international powers, we have any number of them, as you were mentioning earlier. Uh, You have Qatar, the UAE, Egypt, Russia, France, Italy, the US, the UN... Can you give us a, some kind of a sketch of who is with whom? I mean, who, who is backing Haftar? For example, recently we were confused. Of course, we're always confused around Mr. Trump. He just says everything, and it's contrary at all, at all times. So go figure what he's saying. Yes. But it sounded like he was for Haftar, and the same time he's for the other side. What is the general... Configuration. I know that Haftar has support of Egypt, which is close to where he is uh, based. Yes, in the yes. east, the UAE, Saudi are seem to be on his side too. Right. Uh, well, it, uh, they're bringing some maneuvering. Uh, Libya. To start with, let's remember, and your listeners should keep in mind that the Gaddafi regime had really made fun of a lot of government. Was very nationalistic very aggressive in many ways, and in a way, a lot of his governments, especially what I call the Gulf states, uh, the European actors, were really eager to settle scores with him. We could even say that some of the policymakers in the Obama administration, unfortunately, they weren't far off from that. So a lot of actors, they began to say, this is really, uh, one time was uh, dictatorial, but the Cuba and Northern Africa in a way, and it's good to really uh, set a score with it. Now, the government, unfortunately, uh, did not read uh, you know those actors, and many, many, I would say, groups, Islamists, Jihadists, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar uh, also, who um, are really are emerging as the, the two uh, states that are uh, having the role of arming this or that, and we should take it within the larger context, uh, Khalil, of the authoritarian nationalist regimes in Syria, Iraq, and, and Libya that uh, gave these royal uh, conservative governments a chance to really play defense through offense. So in that sense, the Libyan civil war allowed these actors to become more involved and they became involved through supporting various factions and groups. On one side now, what we have is Saudi Arabia, Egypt for security reasons, which is understandable, next to Libya. The United Arab Emirates, which is the faction now that's really dividing the Arab East. They are siding with General Haftar. Tunisia in, in the middle, um, and Algeria is really keeping an eye here and there. But the, these governments are supporting General Haftar. The France and Russia also became sided with, with Haftar uh, recently. France was, was going back and forth, but I think they both had a lot of interest in uh, infrastructure and the uh, oil industry, and they wanted to make sure that's the case. The Egyptian you know, in, involvement in the Libyan civil war is understandable because many, many Egyptian Salafists and Jihadists escaped and Muslim brothers escaped into Libya and that caused uh, a lot of anxiety for the Egyptian uh, government. On the other side, you have the Qatari uh, small emirates rich with its Al Jazeera station and its uh, leisures from gas and oil supported the Islamists. And, you know, um, President Erdogan's government in Turkey sided with, with also with the Islamists. And the United States government really uh, has almost no official policy. The Obama administration, I always gave them zero in handling the intervention in Libya. And President Obama always referred to this as the worst decision 
of his presidency, which is, I think that's an honest assessment. President uh, Donald Trump uh, policy is really very, very, very much is really not very clear. His uh, national security advisor, Mr. Bolton, and the Secretary of, of State, Mr. Pompeo, they are really are sticking with the Faiz Sarraj government. But I think President Trump is really liking the, the strong guy who is really <laughs> trying to establish. <laughs> he has an so instinctive I, I think, identification with dictators. He likes, yeah, he likes I them. I think that, that's, yeah. that's a, to a large extent, that's really, he <laughs> likes strong men. Yeah. He likes uh, who can get things uh, resolved and, and be strong-willed. And, and he's impatient with all of the, the other deliberative sides of, of the government and negotiations. So his, his call to General Haftar earlier, uh, a month ago or so, really threw a lot of turmoil in the American foreign policy. And also Libyan actors in the civil war began to really uh, get very confused and nervous. So both governments sent delegates and made contracts with you know, a public relations firms in Washington, D.C. to lobby for their own taken and, uh, and their own legitimacy. So what you have is a disastrous situation as far as Americans stand on the Libyan civil war, which is sad because there is no policy, there is confusion, and Libya could be really, the Libyan people could be helped by bringing people together, uh, stopping the outside flow of support and manipulation of the Libyan civil war, and negotiating painful compromises. Um. General Haftar also claims to be uh, the world's best bet in terms of getting rid of Islamist forces in Libya, which makes, yes. him, makes him attractive to the West and to Absolutely. Egypt and Saudi Arabia, etc. Is that the case, or is, are things more complicated than that? Well, General Haftar would have not been a factor had the Libyan transition went as planned, where people continue uh, through the election and they did, you know, um, they elected, you know, two parliaments and the Constitutional Assembly and things were, you know, um, going the right way. But because of the horrors and the brutality and the also the, the fact that Libyan society is really in, in a dire situation, General Haftar suddenly became legitimate, not because he is the most eligible leader in, in the civil war, but sometimes, as you know, Khalil, the, the worst thing about civil wars is that you cannot predict what happened next. And yeah, yeah, the, it's the, chaos. Yeah. yeah, it's chaos. And also um, people are actors who will be so marginal, suddenly they are, you know, um, are acceptable or lesser evil. Yes. But at the same time, there is Libyan conflict, as I shared with you and your listeners a year ago or so. It's now regionalized and internationalized. And I think you cannot really resolve the Libyan civil war, nor the law of authoritarianism via General Haftar, without looking at the other actors. So I think what we have in Libya is General Haftar, who is legitimate as for uh, the Egyptian state, the Saudi state, the United Arab Emirates, the close allies, and uh, Russia, of course, for all of the historic reason and economic and military ties with, with Libya. And France, which sees that he is more legitimate now, so they shifted their role here. Now, the, the larger question is there is no denial that the armed militias really created a havoc in Libya, pillaged and stole the budget, and really terrorized the people in, in Tripoli. But also, you know, General Haftar is, is no liberation um, fighter here, but a creation of the Libyan civil war. Right now, and I asked a family member, I said to her, don't you know the history of uh, General Haftar? She said, listen, Ali, we, even if there was no Haftar, the condition will have created Haftar. So it's really a problematic situation. Now, General Haftar hasn't, he said that he's going to respect election, he respect you know um, uh, the the process. That's to be seen. Uh, unfortunately, for him now, uh, with all of his controversial background and, and 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 history and resume in Chad and also in the United States and so, the Libya cannot go back to uh, Gaddafi's um, era, even though some people are longing for the Gaddafi's dictatorship. 
But I think the trouble is nobody could dominate Libya by force. And even though he might defeat the armed for, uh, you know, uh, militias in Tripoli, which is, I doubt that, it's going to be maybe a year or more. God knows, maybe six months, four months, and more people will be, will be impacted by it. The, the larger issue that I have been advocating for a long time, nobody wanted to listen to me, is that we have to sit down and recognize nobody could uh, dominate the country with one voice. You know, you have to make compromises that allows everybody to be accepted, and there has to be rec- reconciliation, and the armed groups themselves need to be treated with creatively and humanely, and not to alienate them and their families. And I think without that reform and ability to compromise and also close all the outside support where the United States could play a role and the UN could play a role, I don't see really much optimism or uh, nor I see resolution to the Libyan civil war, Khalil. I think that situation will continue. On the other hand, if you have compromises, you know, stopping all of all those groups that are dominating the Libyan scene via proxy wars and, you know, a, a year of, of reconciliations and accepting everybody, including the supporters of the Libyan Gaddafi regime, then you might see a breakthrough. Other than that, I think the contradictions uh, of fragmentation and proxy wars with all of the arms where every, you know, Libyan might have three or four guns, I don't see an end to this uh, unfortunate civil war. So that sounds like the most logical solution, what you just described. The, the only thing that's not clear to me, to, to our listeners, and maybe you can help us with this, is give us a, a rough sketch of who is this everybody. What are the main factions in terms of ideology, in terms of geography, tri- <laughs> tribal interests? Who are these all these different interests. Who needs to be accommodated under, under this big tent? Well, there are new actors who emerged after 2011. In terms of the balance sheet of the uh, demographic and social and economic groups in, in the country, most two-thirds of the population live in the western part of, of Libya. And Tripoli, greater Tripoli, had one-third of the Libyan population, which is six to seven million people. The uh, Libyan society is very urban, very literate, has the highest literacy rate in Africa now. Libyan, uh, most Libyans now live in six or seven Libyan cities. And, you know, um, you're talking about uh, really a lot of human development and modernization today. Unfortunately, the legacy of the Gaddafi regime is the reliance on informal institutions and the weakening of the, the, the public institutions, the state institutions that were created in 1951. So what you have, you have um, a continuous manipulation of groups and uh, regions to make sure that he could stay in power that long. And that kind of uh, legacy of um, weakening the institutions and weakening the, uh, the formal ones specifically is playing now, uh, unfortunately, uh, a big role. Libyan society is not tribal as most scholarship and media coverage is talking about. Libyan society is settled, urban, yet when people have no formal political organization for four decades, no political parties, no even cinema were closed, cafes were, were limited, you only left with the mosque, and also the family, extended family. So Gaddafi's regime was more, leadership is more tribal than Libyan society. Libyan society was very urban um, in that sense. And he tried to use this mobilizing anti-colonial statelessness ideology to confront the urban centers that he regarded as really collaborated with the invaders. So these legacies are important to keep in mind because now, you have a body without a head. You have a society that's literate, that educated, that including women. Women have the highest, you know, um, literacy rate as well. But at the same time, you have a lousy leadership that you know mismanaged the the Libyan transition. And I think they we should think of Libya's uh, crisis is a crisis of a failed transition, failed leadership 
not a failed fragmented society or tribal society as often being advocated. But with the question of when you have any society, even Switzerland, if you have 20 million pieces of arms, it's going to be very, very contentious. Libya, with this unbelievable uh, arsenal of, of, of guns and tanks and, and weapons and, and heavy material, is, is really creating, without having a police force, without having an army, without having security apparatus, without secure northern and southern borders, that's a disastrous for any society, not just Libyan society. But I think the, the blame should be the outside intervention, including the Obama administration and the lack of policy under the Trump administration, and the failed, myopic, selfish leaders who led the Libyan transition from 2011 until today. So when we put all these people, um, hopefully at some point, speaking and reaching for compromise, uh, what kind of ideologies have to be reconciled and what kind of local interests? I mean, are there like different, as you said, there are different cities. The militias that are representing the power, most of the power, at least military power in the West around Tripoli, what do they stand for exactly? Are they Well, uh, that's a good question. I think in terms, you have a diverse groups with um, some organized formally with political ideologies, some are reflecting regional and, and city and local anxieties about their rivals, their, um, the competition for the state uh, revenues and positions and uh, appointments. But the, you could say in general, you have the Muslim Brothers, or what I call the Islamist uh, alliance, which includes the Muslim uh, Brotherhood in Libya, the uh, Islamic fighting, uh, Libyan fighting group, which is a, a, a jihadist group that fought in Afghanistan and against the Libyan Gaddafi regime. You have also uh, Salafis from Saudi Arabia for the first time coming to North Africa and Libya uh, to uh, actually General Haftar had a brigade that's Salafi, Madkhali, and also Tripoli, one of the militias is also Salafi. So that, that kind of broad Islamist group uh, headed by the city of, of Misrata and supported by Turkey and, and Qatar, and Qatar uh, that's really a one block. On the other side, you have you know, a liberal nationalist, a national coalition, and very much mainstream Libyan, yes, religious, but not you know, in, in the uh, uh, modern Islamist orientation, and women are so organized in, in that. Also, you have, after these uh, groups and uh, very, very marginal small political parties and coalitions, you have local, regional, you have federalists, you have even a little bit small people calling for the return of the monarchy, and you have also um, local uh, groups and, and that are so small, like the Tubu of southern Libya, who suddenly declared, they found it very, very useful for them to declare themselves minority and persecuted. And they don't really have much more than 30,000, 20,000 people. And also, the a larger block is the supporters of the Gaddafi's regime, who I would say really are a major force. And they were executed, especially in 2013, with a terrible law called the Exclusion Political Law, Qanun al-Azz al-Siyasi, which is literally declared war on them. Uh, these groups of in Libya who supported the old regime that lasted for uh, 40 years are excluded and they saw themselves as really not part of the new system. And many of them, I think, they fought and even uh, tried to sabotage the process as well. And the, these, are, uh, these are centered in Fazen in the south-central uh, <laughs> Libya? That... Yes, uh, the uh, Gaddafi regime's social base, I always you know, stated in my writing and in my scholarship, its social base is in central and southern Libya. But also, it has also members from western Libya, from eastern Libya. But the eastern region, which was the base of, of the Sanusi monarchy that was toppled in 1969, so the coup as a westerner's coup. And the, the, the people, the elite, the urban elite in Tripoli and the urban centers, they thought of the, um, the coup in 1969 as a Fazani coup. So uh, <laughs> you could see that there is even a competition over the narrative. Mm. The, uh, the truth is really in the middle because 
even though he represented the most of the officers with him came from lower middle class, poor background, and they uh, their early uh, egalitarian uh, anti-colonial policies extended state development and infrastructure and school and education to marginal towns, poor neighborhoods, and poor regions in, in Libya. This this kind of social complex configurations is relevant today because most of those um, people who were part of the bureaucracy, the state elite, uh, the, the army, the police, and the, uh, the diplomatic corps were excluded in 2013. And the Islamists and the ex-political prisoners who fought the Gaddafi regime or came from outside like the Front for the Salvation of Libya really uh, made some foolish uh, choices by not really trying to rec- uh, make a, a genuine reconciliation and include many of these groups and they declared war on them and that declaration of, of, of exclusion became a really a bad policy because it added more fire to the civil war. A little bit like what happened in Iraq with the purge. Ab- the- absolutely. I warned, yeah. uh, you know, um, Khalil for a long time, try to learn from what happened in Iraq, because in Iraq, that exactly the lack of reconciliation and ability um, uh, to really resolve differences by both Iraqi opportunistic leadership and also by the uh, the foolish Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration that really did not really recognize or understood the complexity and the, the diversity of Iraqi society and excluding the Ba'athists and the supporters of Saddam Hussein's regime was, as we know, uh, turned to be one of the most disastrous decisions. Which uh, probably helped uh, lead to ISIS and, and catastrophes like uh, that. Absolutely. I think nobody wants to ask that question. Hmm. Where the hell does ISIS come from? Yeah. Why some people supported uh, ISIS in, 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 in Iraq? Yeah. And, and as horrible and bloody and brutal as they are, we have to ask, you know, um, the hard question, uh, how people um, were pushed and alienated to the point that they became radicalized. People are not born terrorists. People are not born, you know, uh, brutal uh, or violent. People were made by, by social, economic and uh, specific factors in human societies. And these are the questions that we often ignore. Yes. So you gave us a real nice uh, broad description of the current situation, which is so complex. One last question I would like to ask you before we adjourn is this added complication as far as the Europeans are concerned, uh, Italy and France uh, especially, uh, they're extremely uh, focused on the, the flood of immigrants from Africa. Yes, into Europe, and they are variously attempting different things with with the Libyans or some of the Libyans, trying to disincentivize any further flow of African immigrants into their countries. The Italians, the French, have been talking about sending fleet. They've been talking about all sorts of different schemes. What is the current situation? in terms of that uh, additional mess? And have the Europeans been able to coordinate with any of the Libyans in that uh, regard? This is a very serious question. Unfortunately, it was not dealt with in the right way. The right way is to help the Libyan people have their voice, have their election, rebuild their state, and especially their army and, and their police forces, and have a, a genuine government that represents the wills and the wishes of the Libyan people uh, in, in that regard. What happened is that a competition by different agendas and even colonial kind of, of, of uh, temptation to say, oh, this is a large chunk of Africa, it's near us, it's, it's really a big state, uh, let's have a sphere of influence, Italy, so that this is their own domain as a colonial um, form of power. Uh, France said, you know, we were excluded for a long time. Fazan is part of our sphere. And the French, uh, Saharan Africa, uh, all was part of, uh, and we, we, we helped, you know, um, uh, liberate Libya from the Italians. But uh, so this opportunistic, you know, colonial uh, mentality 
really did not help the uh, Europeans in many ways. It's true. We have to admit that thousands of immigrants, at least half a million, came to this huge country called Libya from everywhere, from East Africa, from West Africa, from Central Africa, from other, even Syria and other places, and, and Asia coming uh, to uh, the Libyan uh, open borders to, to Europe. So, and, and, but the Europeans also made another very silly and expedient you know, um, stand where blaming the Libyan people who are really going through civil war and they're hopeless and are at the mercy of all of those groups who are you know, taking their towns and their cities and neighborhoods. And in that sense, they began to even deal with armed militias and smugglers and the, the government of Faisal Sarraj trying to halt uh, what they see as real demographic t- threat to them. I think there are two other points that are related to this, Khalil. The first one is that the, uh, the flow of immigrants will not stop, but supporting Libya to protect its borders and have a real genuine transition by uh, bringing people together and helping them um, have reconciliation will help the Europeans in the long term. But Europe has another problem, uh, Khalil, in my opinion. You know, the Europe should really think hard about their economic and demographic policies in, in Africa and also have to determine whether they want Europe to be a white European Union or maybe a Mediterranean a multicultural union. And I don't think the Europeans, by focusing only on security, are they going to resolve that question. Europeans have a, an identity crisis where uh, they have to look at the larger uh, structural ties and impact on Africa, and also uh, resolving or helping the Libyan people free themselves from foreign dominations, armed groups, and foreign intervention will enable European countries and the EU to uh, have a more lasting resolution to this. Other than that, it will become manipulation and uh, domination via divided and, you know, a broken Libyan state. Ali Ahmida is a political science professor and one of three scholars chosen by the United Nations to work on the Libya Socioeconomic Dialogue Project, a project designed to formulate a long-term future vision for the socioeconomic development of Libya. with attorney Zuha Khalili from Palestine Legal about the resolution proposed by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, which aims to protect the use of boycott as a constitutionally protected free speech and as a tool for social change. It comes around the same time the Congressional Democrats are advancing a non-binding resolution to condemn the boycott, divestment and sanctions, or the BDS movement, against Israel. Although the resolution does not reference Israel or BDS specifically, it is understood to be in response to national and state legislations attempting to criminalize those engaging in boycott activities against Israel. So I think one thing that's important to recognize about the bill is that what it's doing is it's affirming the existing law that says that all Americans have a right to engage in boycotts to advance civil rights and that that right is protected by the First Amendment. So the what the resolution does is it describes the history of the right to boycott and it states that the Supreme Court has recognized that it's a right that's protected by the First Amendment. The resolution does not specifically address boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and it does not specifically talk about Israel because boycotts are a tool that have been used in social movements throughout the history of this country. And so 
it is a resolution that is meant to protect the rights of all Americans and it affects all social movements. This is a non-binding resolution, correct? That's right. The bill's co-sponsors are Palestinian American Congresswoman Rashida Talib from Michigan and Democratic Congressman John Lewis. So what is the next step for this bill? So right now, the resolution has been referred to, I believe, the Committee on the Judiciary, and so it would need to be considered by the committee and then advanced to the House for a full vote. So since this is a non-binding measure, what are the legal consequences of this bill if it goes through all the procedural steps and it passes, let's say. What it does is it expresses the sense of the House of Representatives in recognizing that the right to boycott is one that extends throughout the country and extends to all people who are interested in engaging in boycotts for civil and human rights. It does not specifically have a legal consequence, but it does provide support to individuals who are striving for justice and equality and choose to use boycotts as one method of engaging in that struggle. And the resolution specifically asks members of Congress, uh, members of state legislatures, civil rights leaders to support the right to boycott and not to advance legislation that's meant to restrict that right, as we've seen happening in response to the boycott, divestment and sanction efforts to advance Palestinian rights. I read that the fact that she has two co-sponsors in this resolution makes it easier on her because she can take the back seat and she can allow Congressman Lewis and Rashida Taleb to take this forward. So I haven't seen any situations where Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has taken a back seat. She seems like a very outspoken advocate for justice and for her communities that she represents. I believe that she chose this moment because one of the attacks that she has faced from Donald Trump has been attacks based on her support for Palestinian rights and based on the other members of the squad's support for Palestinian rights. Mm -hmm. And so this is one measure to recognize the existing laws that we have that protect the movement for Palestinian rights, like all other social movements that are interested in boycotts. And there is another non-binding resolution that's been pushed by APAC. House Resolution 246, um, it currently, I think it was actually yesterday, it, it passed out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and it could potentially advance to a vote among the full House. It is a resolution that was introduced earlier this year that calls for Congress to condemn the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement that is a nonviolent effort by Palestinian civil society to get global attention to the abuses that they are suffering at the hands of the Israeli government. So this resolution is is meant to silence the movement for Palestinian rights and not to allow them to engage in this process. Like the other resolution we were discussing, this is a non-binding resolution, so it does not have a legal impact. It doesn't threaten jail time for anyone who is engaging in these boycotts to support Palestinian rights, but it does have a chilling impact in the same way that Congresswoman Omar's resolution is meant to create space to ensure that people have their constitutional rights protected, this resolution infringes on those constitutional rights by creating a threatening atmosphere. The resolution deeply mischaracterizes boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Like I mentioned, these are tactics that are widely used by social justice movements, and they are being used by Palestinian civil society to allow people around the world to participate in their their struggle for equality and justice. BDS has also come under fire at the state level. 28 U.S. states have passed legislation that would limit companies, nonprofit entities, and individuals from boycotting Israel at the state level. And also Israel targets them by not allowing them to enter the country. And Ilhan Omar and Rashida are going to be going to Palestine next month. And I've read that they might not be able to enter Israel as well. Since you work with Palestine Legal, can you give us a sense of challenges that BDS activists face given all these restrictions and bans? And I should also mention that California is one of the states that has passed legislation restricting activism around BDS. I think the most powerful impact that these laws have is that they scare people. The laws are written in a way that is unclear, that causes people not to be sure what they are or are not allowed to do. So the First Amendment is above all state laws. It's above 
all federal laws, and it protects our right to engage in boycotts. But these states are creating laws that have been recognized by federal courts to be violating the First Amendment. So there there were challenges in Arizona, in Kansas, um, in Texas, and the federal courts there, they recognized that these laws were interfering with people's First Amendment rights, and they they issued orders blocking those laws from taking place. And the states then went back and now they are amending those laws in order to to prevent them from applying to the individuals that brought the lawsuits because they know that these laws can't withstand challenge in the federal courts. And so, you know, the laws themselves are not actually meant to have a specific impact that is listed in those laws. It's meant to scare people. So in California, the law, it's it says that if you have a contract with a state agency that is over $100,000, you have to sign something saying that you're not engaged in a discriminatory boycott. BDS is not a discriminatory boycott. It is a boycott that is trying to achieve justice and equality for Palestinians. It's trying to end discrimination. And so people who are engaged in BDS can easily sign that certification and it should not interfere with their ability to get contracts with the state. But you know, when we say that California has an anti-BDS law, that causes individuals in California who want to join this global movement to get Israel to end its human rights abuses, it scares them away from being able to do that. And so I think that, that all these measures are meant to create a climate of fear. They're meant to change the story where in this resolution that we spoke about in Congress 246 that is condemning boycott, divestment, and sanctions, the language that it uses to describe boycott, divestment, and sanctions is language that actually more accurately applies to what Israel is doing to Palestinians. It describes it in a way that that creates this climate of violence and this sense that boycott, divestment, and sanctions is something that's causing some kind of harm when it's a completely nonviolent action. It's an economic decision to decide how individuals want to spend their money to be able to pool their collective power to get Israel to stop violating the rights of Palestinians. Zuha Khalili is a staff attorney with Palestine Legal, a national organization that offers legal support to U.S. activists working for justice in Palestine. They also monitor incidents of suppression and silencing of Palestine activism. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Vomina Radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.